Southern Baptist Seminary. The church I pastor presently is not a Baptist church, but uh, it's with great fondness that I look out at this assembly of, of Baptist brothers. But uh, I'm inclined to remind you of the sailor, the Baptist sailor, that was shipwrecked and cast away on an island all by himself where he spent a number of years uh, managing and living off the land until a cargo ship was knocked off course by a storm and happened to come past the island where he was shipwrecked and picked him up. And as the crew was sailing away, they uh, pointed back to the island and said, how long you been there? He's like, oh man, a decade at least, I don't know. They said, well, we noticed you got three buildings, what are they? He's like, oh, that, that building over there on the left is, is the church, that's the church I go to. Oh, good, what's the building in the middle? Oh, that's my house. And uh, they said, what's that building on the right? And like a good Baptist, he said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. All by himself. It's about the way of it, isn't it? And the gospel overcomes all of that. The focus of this conference specifically is gospel-centered leadership. And I want to remind you that uh, last night I suggested to you gospel-centered leadership is leadership that is derived from the gospel, conforms to the shape of the gospel, and is for the purpose of the gospel. But we need to define the gospel. If you were in Bob's session last night on uh, handling criticism, Bob explained the gospel, and I want to make sure that that's done again here. Uh, probably the most concise statement of the gospel in the scriptures is 1 Corinthians 15:3: Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ, holy God and holy man, suffered for us the unbridled fury of God's wrath against sin so that you and me, rebellious sinners, could enjoy the unrestrained delight of God's joy in his Son. That's the best news you will ever hear. Amen. Jesus Christ, all God and all man, absorbed on the cross the unbridled fury of his Father against sin so that you and I, rebellious sinners, could enjoy the unrestrained passion of God's delight in his Son. That's what we get he got all that we deserve so that we could receive all that he deserved. And I'm suggesting to you that leadership that is truly biblical is leadership that is derived from the gospel. It conforms to the gospel and it's for the purpose of the gospel. And I just want to suggest to you, this session, these three sessions that we have together, they don't give us nearly enough time to draw out all the contours of gospel-centered leadership, but I just want to suggest to you a couple of qualities of gospel-centered leadership this morning. Find a picture in the scriptures, in the teaching of Jesus, that brings these qualities together, and then draw out some principles from that and practices for you. So that's our plan this morning. 
a couple of qualities of gospel-centered leadership, and then we'll look in Luke chapter 12 to see a picture of this. Two qualities that I want to emphasize this morning. The very first one, the first cent quality of a gospel-centered leader is humility. The cross-centered leader always remembers Jesus' words during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He said, if these should be silent, the very rocks would cry out. And if he can use rocks, brothers, he does not need you and me. He doesn't. If any of us thinks we are a gift to God's people or to our wife or to our children, we're mistaken. He can use stones. And I want to draw out from the gospel, if we start with the gospel, I want to draw out of it where humility comes from, how humility arises from the gospel. And I want to make three connections from the gospel to humility and go through these rather quickly. The very first one is that the cross reminds me of my sin because the cross is only for sinners, isn't it? The apostle Paul, the great apostle to the church, referred to himself as the least of all the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15.9. Furthermore, he called himself the least of all saints in Ephesians 3.8. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he called himself the worst of all sinners. How could he talk like that? I mean, after all, he was the apostle to the Gentiles to whom most of us owe our lives, spiritually speaking. How could he call himself the least of the apostles, the least of all the saints, the worst of sinners? I imagine myself having a conversation with Paul and it going something like this. Paul, you're exaggerating. You're not the least of the saints. You're an apostle. And he might reply, yes, but remember, my apostleship was given to me. I didn't earn it. I do not deserve it. Just like your own gifts and your calling, it's a gift. In and of ourselves, you and I are perfectly equal. We're both recipients of grace. And I would say, well, okay, Paul, but wouldn't that mean that you and I are just simple saints? You're a simple saint, just like all the rest. You're no worse. And Paul might say, well, that's true, but I've never forgotten that the gospel I now preach, I once sought to destroy. I persecuted the church of Jesus. And I would say, yeah, but Paul, those sins that you committed in the past are forgiven, just like mine are forgiven. And Paul, I think, would probably say, yes, they are forgiven, and I thank Jesus they're forgiven. And I thank him for the promise that he chooses not to remember them anymore, but I do. I do. And even those sins in the past pale in comparison to the sin I see in my own heart right now. The pride, the insidious self-pity. And Paul might refer to other sins in his own soul to which I would respond, hmm, yeah, that's right. I guess I'd have to call myself the chief of sinners too because I can't see the sin in your heart but I sure can see it in mine. And I know that the cross is only for sinners. And so the cross humbles me because it reminds me it's only for sinners, but 
Secondly, the cross humbles me by reminding me of the awful price that had to be paid for my redemption. Think of this, brothers. Do you feel the fearfulness of how the slaughter of the innocent Son of God witnesses to your sin? The innocent Son of God, the only perfect person who ever lived, had to be slaughtered to fix your sin. That's how bad it is. You know, last night we read in Numbers chapter 20 about the children of Israel turning their back once again on their good and kind God and doubting that he would provide water for them. I want to suggest to you that when we read stories like that, we need to see in that story a reflection of our own heart. You see, we are the unbelieving complainers. We are Rahab the harlot. We are the woman taken in adultery. We are the self-righteous Pharisee who stands in the temple and says, Lord, I thank you that I am not as other men. That's you and me, brothers. And when we see the broken and the outcasts of society and the homeless, we are looking in the mirror. Every one of us was poor and Jesus came, making himself poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. You're looking in the mirror when you see sinful people. Thirdly, the gospel humbles me because of its own example. 1 Corinthians tells me that God loves the lowly and he prefers the poor. And the cross commands me to forsake any style of leadership that is calculated to impress, that is built on ostentation, that perceives me as in any way better than my wife, my children, my church family, The cross eschews all of that. God loves to lead, brothers, through weak people. He loves to lead through weak people. He prefers the nobodies, the outcasts, the lowlifes. That's what the gospel tells me. And so we know that his power and wisdom are made perfect through our weakness. And as Jerry Bridges put it, if you want to be humble... Draw near the cross. In these three ways, the cross will humble us. And I want to suggest that uh, humility is the first and central quality of a cross-centered leader. But there's another one that I want to suggest to you, and that's confidence. Confidence arises from the cross. Now, don't be mistaken. If confidence rests in self, There's another biblical category for it. It's not confidence at that point. What's it called? Pride. I'm not suggesting that the cross puts confidence in self, but cross-centered leaders are confident leaders. A couple of ways confidence arises from the cross. A couple of ways. There, There are many ways. I want to just suggest a couple of them to you. One is when Jesus saves us, He makes us his slaves. Why does confidence arise from that? Because when you recognize that you are the slave, the blood-bought slave, no longer of sin, no longer of self, but of righteousness, the slave of Jesus, it means you have one person to please, one. You have one person that you need to please. That's it. 
And the fact of the matter is, because of his work on the cross, you stand pleasing to him. Complete confidence arises from that, brothers. There's no need for us to fear what people think. There's no reason for us to doubt that we can do this job. Confidence arises in us. You know, I went to a concert with Michael Card um, a couple of weeks ago. And Michael Card, for years, has gone to an African-American church and shared the story of uh, his first few years at this church, noticing that these brothers and sisters would constantly refer to Jesus as master. And he investigated with them a bit. Why is it that so often you praise Jesus and pray to Jesus and speak of Jesus as your master? In the white churches where I've come from and grown up, we we call him Lord, we call him Savior, but master is not a title that's often on our lips. And with a smile, these brothers told him, that that title for our Jesus goes all the way back to our roots in slavery. And it was a prayer, it was a praise, it was a word that we would use for our Jesus in the presence of our white owners to indicate to them, you don't own us. We have one master, and it's Jesus. I like that. I like that a lot. The cross tells me I have one person to please, and that instills a lot of confidence. But the gospel also, a second way that the gospel inspires confidence is it helps us accept our weaknesses. Paul Tripp says this so well in his book, War of Words. Quoting from him, he says, one of the sure signs that we have not really understood the gospel is when we continue to be afraid of, discouraged by, and unwilling to accept our weakness. Let me read that again because I cannot improve on that and we must hear. One of the sure signs that we have not really understood the gospel is when we continue to be afraid of, discouraged by, and unwilling to accept our weakness. Christ came precisely because we are weak. Our weakness will not get in the way of what the Lord wants to do in us. Our delusions of strength will get in the way. The power of God is for the weak. The grace of God is for the unable. The promises of God are for the faint. The wisdom of God is for the foolish, end quote. And that is very well said. So the cross inspires confidence because it reminds me that I am the slave of one master and my weaknesses will not prevent him doing his work through me in your lives and in the lives of all of those whom you serve. Is there a picture of this in the scriptures that takes all of this and more and pulls it all together for us? Well, yes, there is. Jesus' teaching gives us a perfect picture of a cross-centered leader in Luke chapter 12, and I want to direct your attention there and show you in Jesus' teaching a portrait of gospel-centered leadership. In a word, what is a cross-centered leader? Luke chapter 12, verse 42. I'm going to read down to verse 48. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? 
Luke 12, 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In this passage, Jesus gives us, in a word, a picture of a cross-centered leader. The word is steward or manager in our Vernacular, we might say a COO, a chief operating officer. He's not the owner of all the things, but he's the one responsible for the use and regulation and management of all of them. But it's interesting because as depicting, when, when Jesus depicts leaders as stewards or household managers, he uses a picture of leadership that is both countercultural and paradoxical. It's countercultural because where in the culture do you hear descriptions of leadership that say the leader is the one who makes himself the servant? Where do you hear a description of leadership that says the leader is the most humble? Yes, I, I understand. I understand that there are secular books on leadership that describe leaders as men who look outside to give praise for success and who look inside to look for the cause of failure. That is in the culture. You'll read that in, for example, Jim Collins, Good to Great. But no one connects humility to the cross except Christians. And so Jesus gives us a countercultural picture of leadership, but also a paradoxical one. The leader isn't just a servant. He's also an overseer. He's given charge of things. And of course, we would expect a paradoxical picture of leadership from a book that focuses on a paradoxical gospel. Leadership is a paradoxical calling. We are both servants and overseers. And I want to draw those two images out a little bit more. The leader as servant. Very clear in this passage, obviously. As a servant, the steward is under the owner. He's not the owner in the same way that you are not the owner of your leadership responsibilities. You're not the owner of your wife. You're not the owner of your children. You're not the owner of your company. You're not the owner of your church. You're not the owner of your friendships. You're not even the owner of your own masculinity. As Bob said last night, when God made you a man, he made you a leader. Well, that's by God's design, and he owns your manhood. He defines it. And he's the one who gets to describe what it's supposed to be. We are under an owner. And all of our leadership, all of our decisions, all of our actions must reflect the values of the owner. You see that in verse 45 and verse 46. If the steward begins to beat the other servants, it doesn't reflect the values of the owner. 
Gospel-centered leaders never forget that they are, first and foremost, servants of the Most High God, and they are accountable to Him and Him alone. Cross-centered leaders live with their eyes on two awesome days, the day of their atonement and the day of their accounting. We live with our eyes fixed on two awesome days. We look at our atonement and it gives us joy and confidence. We look to the day of our accountability and it gives us diligence and devotion. Additionally, the cross makes us servants not just of the one high God and Jesus his son. The cross makes us servants of all people. Jesus said in Luke 22, uh, speaking to the disciples when they were disputing who was the greatest, Jesus said in Luke 22, Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them call, are called benefactors, but not so with you. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader of you as the one who serves. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's not, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Greatness, according to Jesus, is lowliness. It's making yourself the servant, the child, the youngest, the one under everyone else. Leadership is God's calling upon you for the sake of your followers. My friends, we have no rights to be served. It is the height of pretension to stand in the shadow of the cross and demand your rights, isn't it? The cross is where Jesus laid down all of his rights, all of them, every one of them. And it is the height of ostentation to stand in the shadow of the cross and demand that I be served and my needs be met. Last summer, our church had a men's retreat. We took our boys up into the mountains and camped overnight for a day. And a, a day and a night. Matt Moberg went with us. Matt, are you here this morning? <laughs> Matt grew up in the Upper Peninsula and fished all the time. I grew up in southeastern Wisconsin and likewise fished all the time. And so as, as Matt and I were packing the truck, headed off into the mountains with three of my four sons and uh, headed up there to meet a bunch of other fathers and sons from our church, we decided in a bit of Midwestern hubris, that we didn't need to bring any food with us for dinner. We were going to catch our dinner. <laughs> and uh, we brought breakfast. Luckily, our wise wives packed for us a couple pounds of bacon, you know, two dozen eggs. I mean, we were set on breakfast. All we took for dinner was the just-in-case-it-rains-and-we-can't-go-fishing jar of peanut butter and loaf of bread. That's all we had. And uh, we left, if I, if I recall correctly, we left without sufficient time to eat much lunch. So noon meal, evening meal, afternoon meal the next day, all of that was to be determined. But, you know, we were manly men ready to live off the land. So we got up there in the mountains and set up our tent and got ready to go and headed down to the lake. Now, I didn't realize that it's not just the deep south that has rednecks. Colorado has a full complement of rednecks. And apparently they all camp in this same location. <laughs> and all 
summer, they fished this lake. There weren't any fish in this lake. All the sticks were caught out of this lake. I mean, there was nothing in the water except stones and nasty-looking sucker fish that I don't think I would eat. Well, I'll leave it to your imagination as to how the, how the fishing went, but it, the day only got worse. We, we got up there, threw a line in the water, nothing. I'm like, Matt, are you, you know, and he's walking around different places on the shore, and uh, he decided to rent a canoe, so he comes paddling over. He's like, let's get out in the middle of this lake, and we can we can really catch something. So we fished from the canoe for a while. doesn't do any good. Matter of fact, it puts our uh, lives in jeopardy because one of those thunderstorms, one of those mountain thunderstorms rolls in in about, you know, 30 minutes. And we can see these black clouds coming in, and we're paddling for the shore, you know, to turn this boat in. And lightning's flashing, and we get the boat turned in, and that, you know, exercise has our metabolism really cranking, and we are starving. And it's raining and cold, and so my metabolism is cranking because I'm just trying to generate heat, you know, and there's nothing to eat. I mean, we brought, you know, bacon for breakfast and eggs and some, some marshmallows for s'mores. I mean, that's all we had. And a friend of mine from our church who is a much-experienced camper, pulls out of his cooler these little tinfoil wraps, sticks them on a skewer and holds them out there over the fire. And I'm like, John, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just cooking up some food for the boys. Now, John had also caught some fish in the lake. John was not only a good camper, he was a good fisherman. So John had fish to serve his kids. He had these little tinfoil wraps which... When he slit them open, the aroma was devastating. Like, what is in those? And he had steak in them with, you know, a little Worcestershire sauce on there and some spices that in his mercy and wisdom, he had packed extra steaks. He had packed extra hot dogs. He had packed extra everything and my three boys, it's not like just me, like I'm bumming, you know, a little something off my friend. It's me, my friend Matt, and my three sons. He's feeding a whole additional family. He gave us steak. He gave us hot dogs. He gave us some of his fish. We ate on the grace and kindness of my good friend that day. The next morning, I'm frying up bacon on our camp stove, and various people around the camp start coming by, and they're like, hey, boy, that smells kind of good. And my boys are like, hey, whoop, whoop, this is our bacon. <laughs> what did you just eat last night, boys? Did you like those hot dogs? Those were good, weren't they? Better than the pine cones we were piling up. <laughs> it's the height of pretension to demand your rights when you've just received grace, isn't it? To stand in the shadow of the cross and go, hey, I have rights, serve me, is as counter-gospel as you can possibly get. And so, gospel-centered leaders know that they are servants. Ask yourself, is there some way you can give yourself to serve those you lead? Do you see signs of selfishness in your own life that are keeping you from serving with your whole heart? Are you withholding something or feeling slighted because your rights have been violated? If we were to ask that group of people that you lead, 
your company, your family, your church? Who's the biggest servant? Would they name you? The cross calls us to this. It calls us to be servants. If your leadership has a gospel shape to it, it will be shaped like a servant, but it will also be shaped like an overseer. Leaders don't just lay their lives down. The paradox of gospel-centered leadership is the leader's more than a servant. He's also an overseer. The owner put the steward, in verse 44, over all his possessions. And in verse 48, Jesus brings the warning, the one to whom much was given, much will be required. The leader is also an overseer. Yes, like a servant, he's gentle and lowly. But on the other hand, the leader must be courageous and lead with authority because he's been put in charge. The gospel calls us to both. One of the major themes of the Bible is the importance, especially, especially in the Old Testament we see this, the importance of godly, strong, wise leaders in God's economy. One man can make all the difference and often has in redemptive history. A biblical leader is not shy about his calling in your lives because a biblical leader is passionate about the gospel and he knows he's called to advance the gospel in your lives. He's eager to do that and so he's eager to step up and fulfill that calling in your life. This is what we are overseers for, brothers, to help our people, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, be reconciled to God, not just unsaved people, but Christian people who need to bring more thoughts, more behaviors, more habits in line with their Christ. This is our calling, and it's shaped by the gospel. This brings me to point out that it's lonely sometimes as a leader. It's not only lonely serving and laying your life down, but it's lonely when you oversee and take charge and step up and take responsibility. Sometimes you might feel like everyone has forsaken you and you are all alone in this. And the gospel speaks to us there. The gospel tells us that the Son of God hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he was alone, you never have to be. Because he cried out in his all-forsaken wilderness, My God, where are you? You will never be forsaken. Hebrews 13, verse 5. The cross bought this for you. The painful reality is that biblical leadership is not often very glamorous or very personally satisfying. Sometimes we lead purely as an act of obedience to our calling. And if it's less than obedience, at some point, something will happen that will take all the wind out of your sails and you will do one of two things. You will quit and walk away or you will give in to self-pity and find yourself satisfying your heart in ways that are probably prohibited because you aren't leading out of obedience. You were leading out of what it was doing for you. Brothers, we're called to lead, and at the end of the day, we must obey the calling. 
But again, let's not forget the leadership of our Savior at this point. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Founder and perfecter, perfecter what, those are words that describe leadership, aren't they? Jesus, our leader, who founded and perfected our faith for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our leader, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, fixed his eyes on the all-surpassing joy that awaited him on the other side. My friends, the cross reminds you that every patiently endured hurt will someday Someday give way to great joy. In someday, the first moment you fix your eyes on your Savior and He returns your gaze, all the critical words won't matter one whit. You won't care about any suffering in that moment. So look forward to it now. Look forward to the joy that the cross promises you. Are you weary? Take heart. Tempted to abdicate your leadership and just give up? Persevere. The cross tells you that there's joy. So lead as a man with strength and oversight and lead as a servant with humility and gentleness. I want to draw this into some practical and specific principles. This is sort of a a miscellaneous collection of principles. Some of them reiterate what was said last night. Some of these will be a little different direction. But uh, these are, I can't think of a better place to stick these in for you. But over the last several months as I've explored what the cross means for leadership, multitudes of principles have occurred to me and I just want to share four or five of them with you. Number one, which we mentioned last night, the gospel's ultimate object and motive is the glory of God. Therefore, a gospel-centered leader takes the glory of God as his own goal and his own motive as well. That's leadership that conforms to the gospel. A second principle that flows out of the gospel, the cross reminds me that I am God's renovation project. I'm like, it's like God has a reality TV show, you know, complete makeover soul edition or something. And God's remaking me in the image of his son. You know what that tells me about leadership? That tells me and it tells you that God doesn't wait until you are perfectly made and the concrete is all set up just right to put you in leadership. He uses leadership to remake you in the image of his son. And so there are some men in this building, some young men, some men who have been in the church for years, and God has been calling you and shaping you, and your excuse for so long has been, I'm not ready to lead. My friends, that's not an excuse. That's a qualification. Because leadership helps you be more like the Son. And the Gospel tells us this. A third principle is, The gospel emphatically demonstrates that no single believer is any more worthy of grace than any other. You know, so, so, well, let me draw out the principle. The point of that is 
cross-centered leaders treat everyone the same. They aren't respecters of, respecter, a respecter of persons. I'm new in the, in the Denver area. I've only been there for a couple of years. And, um, and, and I have the same experience coming back here. When I meet new pastors there, when I meet you brothers here, people ask, how's the church going? And when they start to draw me out a little bit and ask about my church, uh, the temptation is to tell them about the, the sort of cultural all-stars that are in my church. You know, um, we, have a, we, we have a very wealthy real estate developer in our church, and we have a very prominent law enforcement officer in our church, and we have one of the coaches for one of the major sports teams in the Denver area goes to our church, and the temptation is to name these people as though they're any more significant than the homeschool moms that go to our church. What, what is that in me? You know what that is? That's a counter-gospel impulse. That's an impulse that arises from a sinful heart, not a gospel-saturated heart. And it's an impulse that says some people are a little more worthy of grace and a little more significant in God's economy, and the gospel destroys that thinking. When people ask you about, hey, how's your family? How's your leadership? How are things? How are the people that you lead? Remember that everyone in your group is the same at the cross. Ground is all level there. No one's more worthy of God's grace than any other. Two more principles and then some picture, part of the picture of cross-centered leadership. Number four, the gospel reminds us that leadership is seasonal work. It's seasonal work. You get a summer job as a leader and then you pass off the scene. Every one of us is expendable and our leadership presence is temporary. The gospel tells me this because there's only one savior, isn't there? There's only one man that every one of us needs and his name's Jesus. That means cross-centered leaders prepare for the day when they pass off the scene. Who are you mentoring, brothers? The gospel calls you to prepare for when you're gone because you're not the savior. The gospel calls you to reproduce yourself in the life of someone else. Men, are you pouring yourself into your son? Are you, are you discipling him? Amen. If your son is grown and he's an adult by now, are you pouring yourself into other young, formative men? Because you know that your leadership is seasonal and at some point the company will no longer need you and Jesus will call you home and you'll be there forever and someone else will take your place. Cross-centered leaders have eyes for that day. Number five. The gospel speaks a timely, relevant word to a broken world. The gospel defines ultimate reality for us. It speaks a word of hope to us, and it bids us respond. Cross-centered leaders do the same. I went to a class at, um, at Denver Seminary just before the inauguration. It was about a week before the inauguration. And the professor who was leading this class was a, was a pretty well-known author and um, relatively significant, you know, well-known guy in, in evangelical circles. And he was making it a point to visit churches in the Denver area while he was, taking, while he was teaching this class. And uh, he said he stopped into a church the Sunday prior, 
sat through the whole thing, hour and a half meeting, singing, preaching, and there was not one word said about the economic crisis, about the inauguration that was just a week away, about the international conflicts that our country was facing. Not one word. And this wise, godly man said to every one of these students in training, these experienced pastors in this class, men, the gospel calls us to do better than this. The gospel comes into people's lives, understands their world, and speaks to them right where they're at. And leaders who understand that follow suit. We need to understand the world where our people live and speak into that, especially pastors. My brothers, and so many of you know this better than I, but if from Sunday to Sunday, all we do is live in the world of the Bible and our people get the impression on Sunday morning that this meeting on Sunday morning has nothing to do with their lives from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night, we fail them. The gospel speaks to the issues that our people are dealing with and cross-centered leaders speak into people's lives. A word of hope, a word of comfort, a timely prophetic word that bids people to respond. What does a cross-centered leader look like? Let me just give you a few practices. The principles, I just listed five. These are suggestive. You draw others out of the gospel on your own. Let me give you five practices. Practices of gospel-centered leadership. What do gospel-centered leaders do? I want to suggest to you that these things need to be routines. Routines are the strategies that cross-centered leaders use to keep the cross central. See, the cross is constantly in danger of slipping out of our grasp. Paul said to Timothy in a, in a stunning, stunning verse, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. What? What? Why say that? It's like saying don't forget to blink. You know why Paul says that? Because we have a tendency to forget Jesus Christ. So many things in our world press in on us and impress us with the facade that they are more important and they're more real and they're more authentic than the gospel. And so we need, we need routines in our life, structures that help us keep the gospel central. Amen. These routines are the things that will make our good intentions become realities. So let me suggest some routines to you. Number one, you've heard this three times. This will be the third time now. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. And to do that, get some helpful tools by the cross-centered life, by living the cross-centered life, by the book A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent, it's called. I didn't see it in the bookstore. That's probably my fault for not asking the guys to get it. Extraordinary book on how to preach the gospel to yourself every day. 31 reasons in that book. 31, that that's, corresponds to a number. What is that? Oh, days in a month. Yes, helpful book. Number two. Pray, pray, pray. Cross-centered leaders make it their first matter of business to pray. Pray for your leadership and pray for those you lead. If you are humble as the cross calls you to be, you will know you need God's help and you'll pray for it. 
If you are loving as the cross calls you to be, you will know those who follow you need your help, need God's help, forgive me, need God's help, and you will pray that he gives it to them. So pray. A third practice, cross-centered leaders become intimately acquainted with their own sin. Though God promises us he will not remember our sins anymore, he does not command us to do that same thing. It's an unspoken irony. What I draw out from it is it's helpful for us to know our sin well. Not to wallow in it, but to use it as Paul did to humble us. Humility and greater freedom from sin will always result from a close examination of your sin. Two more. Study regularly those you lead for opportunities to serve them and to speak gospel truth into them. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Consider one another, the text says, so that you may know how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. About once a month, on Monday, I will take our church directory and read through it with the specific goal of bringing to mind people in our church who are struggling, suffering, whom I haven't talked with in some time, who need a word of gospel-centered hope. I do this regularly, brothers, because if I don't, I will forget them. And I will forget to study them. And I won't think about them. And they will fade from my mind. And I will stand before Jesus someday and he will say to me, why didn't you encourage Scott when he was losing his business? And all I will have to say is, I'm sorry, I forgot. I have a church directory that if I would have just looked at it would help me. Well, I am determined that five well-spent minutes once a month will make that moment go well for me when I stand before Jesus. I'll be able to say, by your grace, I touched base with Scott regularly and he persevered by your doing. Last practice. Discern, as you examine your own heart, which side of the steward leadership paradox comes more naturally to you? Which side comes more naturally to you? Are you more naturally the overseer who's assertive and commanding? Or are you more naturally the servant who's under and leading? None of us is perfectly balanced, brothers. We're one or the other by nature. Taken to excess, both of them are wrong. Imbalanced servants are weak. Imbalanced overseers are oppressive, and both are sinful. Know your bent well so that you can have people around you who can help pull you back to the center. And we will, by God's grace, lead by serving and overseeing well to his great glory. Amen. Jesus, I pray that you would shape us in the image of the gospel. You would shape us by the power of the gospel in your image as an overseer and a servant, humble and strong for your glory. Amen.